Welcome to episode 41 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with yours truly, Ryan Corey. Uh, this has been one of those rare days where I interview, edit, and uh, upload all in one go. Uh, so please, if, if you like our chat uh, or any chat for the mat, any chat for that matter, I'd uh, greatly appreciate it if you could leave a quick review on iTunes. All right, news of the moment. Uh, some new developments to share with my uh, cancer treatments. Uh, Sarah and I are going to post a live video tomorrow. Uh, so Sunday, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, on my personal Facebook page. Uh, so it's facebook.com slash Ryan Corey. And uh, I'll give you the heads up that it's a bit of a mixed bag, but uh, there are still options, uh, which is the important takeaway here. Also, our Shutter Precision Dynamo Hubs, uh, they literally just arrived. Uh, so those that have already ordered, I'll ship your packages out uh, hopefully later next week. Uh, Chemo Boy and uh, Christmas post office lines do not mix right now. And let's see here. Um, I can't remember if I've mentioned this yet or not, but Bikepack Canada is set to become the exclusive online retailer of Apidura bikepacking bags in uh, Canada. Uh, those that, those of you probably already know, uh, I'm an ambassador for, for the brand, so it's, it's cool that we have this unique opportunity. Um, we're going to put in our initial order towards the end of January. Um, if you want in, please email me at info at bikepack.ca. Uh, Normally in these situations, I would offer a discount to uh, get the ball rolling. Uh, But in respect to our brick and mortar friends, um, I have an alternative uh, incentive in mind, uh, perhaps an iron on patch. Uh, I like that idea. I just need to do a bit of homework on uh, what patch materials will work best with those bags. Uh, All right. My interview today is with Jeff Bartlett from Canmore. Jeff is a professional adventure photographer and writer. Our comprehensive chat gets into tech tips, storytelling versus advertising, and uh, how to get started in the outdoor media industry. Plenty of great info to uh, digest here. Enjoy. All right, Jeff. We're, Drum roll and everything. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where did you just get back from? You've been traveling a lot lately. I, I just came back from a 10-day shoot. Uh, for Travel Alberta, doing video and photos uh, in their dark sky preserves in southern Alberta, so down to Cypress Hills, Waterton National Park, and up in Jasper National Park. And in the new year, I'm going to the farther north, I guess, in the province to complete the project up to Wood Buffalo and Fort McMurray. Uh, okay. And what is what is this dark sky project? Um, it's just part of Travel Alberta's marketing, I guess. Um, Alberta has lots of clear nights and dark sky preserves are places where there's no ambient light. So you can see northern lights and the stars better than most places. So we're just sort of building a video that shows off all there's six dark sky preserves in the province. And we're just kind of showing off all six of them and uh, just sort of encourage people to get out and see these parks in a different time of day. Because we all know it's quite crowded during the day in the summertime. Is that... I don't know if it's just coincidence, but is dark sky kind of a new buzzword lately for tourism? Because I've been seeing it a lot in the U.S. too lately. Yeah, I think it's definitely, I'm trying to think what year it was, but maybe five years ago, Jasper became the world's biggest dark sky preserve. And ever since then, it's sort of been mentioned a lot. And I think it's just sort of a, I don't know, maybe it's part of this back to nature movement that we is like all over social media people are just getting out and if you live in a city in the states you don't see stars at night so it's kind of cool to get out and 
kind of experience it maybe yeah i uh i, I can't remember if we've chatted about this before but uh have you been to the big island of hawaii before no i know they're big it's another great spot yeah we're just uh pitching a project there hopefully for march so hopefully soon i'll be there yeah, I I think if I was in your shoes, I would probably pitch that one before going down to uh, Waterton in the in winter, <laughs> up to Wood Buffalo as well. It'll be on the Northwest Territories border, so that'll be a chilly, uh, oh, wow. not as nice as Hawaii. <laughs> when, when is that trip happening? Uh, January. So January. okay. So you're uh, you're around for Christmas though. And yes, home for <laughs> ten days right now, which is nice, and yeah. looking forward to getting out and doing some skiing yeah. now that we finally got some new snow. Yeah. So you you live in Canmore. You're you're new to the town. You're like a year ago or so, or yeah, I just passed a year down here in the Bow Valley. Okay. Um, I moved out of Jasper about eighteen nineteen months ago. Yeah, uh, spent six months on the road and then settled down here basically at yeah. the end. So yeah. So we were chatting before. Canmore seems like a pretty good town for for what you're doing. Like a lot of. Uh, you know, kind of go-getters and as far as adventure media and photographers, writers, you know, I was just pointing out a stack of Rocky Mountain books and I think, you know, half those people live here and... Yeah, I think it's the, like the ultimate Canadian hub in terms of, it's an hour from Calgary and an airport, which is nice for me and then, then sort of a two-hour circle you can get to most of the, I guess it's the eastern BC, western Alberta mountain towns and good environments, so there's tons of access Okay. Uh, which is quite nice. Cool. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, writing, uh, photography, maybe a little bit about, about filmmaking. Yep. Um, but why don't we, you know, provide a bit of a foundation? Like you are a bike packer, you have done, you know, a fair amount of uh, touring. Like, what's your experience yeah. for for those that don't know you? Yeah, I guess true bike packing trips. I've really only done the Continental Divide Trail or the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, um, and then I just came back about a month ago from the New Mexico Off Road Runner. And before those, I've done. I used to try to bike across the country every year. Um, so I've done lots of touring, but more panniers than bike packing. I guess a little different style. Um, and uh, yeah, and then just weekend weekend trips here and there around the Bow Valley. So. Cool. Uh, so you called the New Mexico route the, the Roadrunner? Yeah, it's the New Mexico Off-Road Runner okay. is the name of it, I think. That's the, this is the route that's on bikepacking.com? Yes. Okay. Okay. Because I, I know you've mentioned you were going to piece together a bunch of routes that, that yeah. ended up happening? Or? Uh, no. So I tried to do, I was my original plan was to combine that one with the Monumental Loop, which is another bikepacking.com route in yeah. southern New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, and just the way the timing worked out and I uh, ended up coming home a few days early and didn't get to do both of them. That's that's the one one big advantage that the bikepacking.com has is that uh, when you focus on American routes, especially in winter, you have a bit of a leg up because you can uh, actually do some stuff down south, whereas up here it's... <laughs> Well, I, I guess we're looking at fat bike routes. But. Yeah, and I mean that was exactly my motivation for it. Is I was I had a few weeks off in November and just basically was searching out yeah. routes, so I didn't have to do much planning. And then where the weather was going to be warm enough to not be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Divide, New Mexico, some other uh, tours. 
Uh, you're getting more into it. Uh, what's your background uh, on the, the media side of things? Yeah, I graduated with a diploma in journalism um, almost 10 years ago now, and then sort of went straight into travel writing and uh, probably been sort of this, yeah, it's like a 10-year journey, I guess, of doing travel writing, getting more into travel photography, and then now slowly in the last sort of four or five years trying to bring it more towards the adventure side of things, which is, you know, just basically trying to pair my career with my lifestyle completely so that I can yeah. not tell the difference between a work day and a play day. So, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess from a biking perspective, I do a lot of work with Canadian cycling magazine, um, do a lot of their Western Canadian content, um, some features in a lot of their travel stories. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically it's just a good excuse to stay connected to the bike world and, yeah get to go to races like the tour of Alberta and then get to go mountain biking in places um, that I might miss otherwise. Yeah. So I, I know one of the questions I often get asked and we're, we're kind of in similar lines of work, but so what is the job that pays the bills or how, <laughs> Um, yeah, how do you how do you survive? <laughs> yeah, sorry to mad at Canadian Cycling, but it's not the magazine that pays the bills. <laughs> the uh, I think the I mean my primary I guess I have three streams of revenue, and I sort of have um, uh, travel marketing organizations. So that's Travel Alberta, Destination BC, those yeah. types of organizations are probably about forty percent of my work, and I've been lucky enough to do that in Canada and abroad. Um, and then I teach a few workshops every year, um, trying to do three next year, uh, which is another sort of traditional photographer way to make an income. And then uh, growing side of my business and where most of my focus is going now is trying to get the um, commercial shoots for outdoor brands. So I've been doing a lot of work with Eddie Bauer the last few years. I uh, did some smaller projects for um, specialized bikes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I do like a packraft company called Cocapelli Packrafts and trying to do that sort of outdoor brands and just because they have more of a focus on real adventure, I guess, where travel marketing is, um, it looks beautiful in images and it's, it's great work and a lot of fun, but a lot of times they're marketing, um, sort of day trips. They're, they're basically marketing the products that sell in their destination. So yeah. it's a guided hike somewhere that, you know, your visiting grandparents could go or something like that. So it's not necessarily the same, uh, interest level, I yeah. guess, personally, but, um, and like living in Alberta, we, you know, we see all the tourism, Alberta commercials and, um, you know, sponsored ads and they, they look pretty <laughs> slick and, you would assume that, you know, every country has something similar, but you were telling me that tourism Alberta is, you know, kind of one of the gold standards, right? Yeah, I think um, it's probably in 2010, 2011, Travel Alberta really started to take a lot of their traditional media and did a lot of online uh, work and really was sort of a front, like an industry leader, uh, I'd say right alongside Tourism Australia. And just really focused on social media marketing, online marketing, getting people onto their website that doesn't necessarily look like a, a sales portal. It looks more like an editorial website and gives you ideas. And they really, yeah, I guess they kind of changed the way that people market tourism. And it's maybe more hitting on inspiration and just making people really dream about the place as opposed to jamming a product down their throats. Um, and I think that's sort of... I mean, we see it right across any industry. It's more of that creating a 
relationship or a sense of awe with a place as opposed to you know trying to sell the certain hotel or a certain weekend getaway or something yeah so sell the story the experience yeah yeah exactly and i mean patagonia as a company is probably the best at it i think we all know the story so well and uh I think that's sort of a good example of like you're just trying to build a friendship even though you're a faceless brand you're building a friendship with all of your customers and then that leads to a need to advertise a lot less or a need to advertise differently yeah. uh, maybe more cost effectively so you know I think a lot of the questions that would come up for the average listeners how do you bridge the gap between you know your your point and shoot phone to you know making it your your career path like what what kind of steps did you have to take when you were starting out to make it yeah. you know I, your passion your purpose yeah um it's funny because in the last kind of year or so i've taught 18 uh different workshops one day workshops to business owners and teaching them how to use their can or their phones to build uh, sort of video and uh, photography assets that are good enough to use for their advertising, especially online. Yeah. But I think the biggest thing is, um, yeah, I guess once you're trying to do it as a career, you have to do it with a sense of purpose. So you're going out at the right times of day, you're getting up early, shooting sunrise or shooting sunsets, which here in the summertime is a really brutal uh, undertaking because the sun rises, you know, 4.35 in the morning and sunsets not till 10 at night. Yeah. Um, and then also sort of developing a, a theme or a, a style to your work so that you're sticking to one niche and always, you know, producing content from, uh, you know, I guess if aside from when I'm traveling for work, I'm really well known for work in the Canadian Rockies and outdoor adventure. So I don't get a lot of phone calls to photograph a wedding and I don't get a lot of inquiries to, you know, do random shoots that don't really fit in your niche and as you develop that you you know you build a bit of a name recognition and you start getting more and more opportunities from it uh i i only ask because i know we looked into it um because you know for our own wedding we didn't find a lot of options but uh dare i say or suggest that wedding photography might be more the the stable or lucrative career or is that not necessarily the case um I think from a, um, I think as if you're starting out, I think that it's the easiest way to quickly start making a living. Yeah. And I say that having never done it, um, but it just there does seem to be a shortage of it, and it's sort of a way that you can make a couple thousand bucks on a Saturday, yeah. and then uh, so it makes it sustainable pretty quickly. Um, where I think once you're into the industry and working on commercial shoots, or if you're coming up with ad campaign ideas and pitching them to companies, I think that. Um, there's probably more of a limit on wedding photography because you can only shoot, I suppose you can shoot maybe 50 a year. Yeah. Um, but with the commercial stuff, there's a lot more um, variables in it and you get into image licensing and things like that that can be quite lucrative depending on the use. Uh, okay, so you, okay, you said, and I get this very much, that you know brands are about creating stories, but they hire you as kind of a third party to go in and capture this you know video or pictures or whatever yep so are they relying on on you to to kind of craft the story or do they take what you have and build a story around it um it can happen either way i guess um one way that's i mean i guess because i have a large social media audience i get hired by companies sometimes 
uh, to kind of produce my own story in relation to their product. Yeah. Um, so I recently did a Toyota RAV4 thing that was only a social media project. So, you know, I took one of their cars for a road trip for a few days and I just shared that on my own channels. Um, so then, you know, I mean, they give you guidelines of this, you know, they were looking for mountain environments and to make it look like a rugged four by four. So you do that. And, uh, but then it's up to me to kind of craft my own version of it, where if you're shooting something that's for their advertising, uh, quite often you'll do a phone call and just be in on a sort of a creative brief with the, there'll be someone from the client and if, whether it's an agency or just the head of marketing or something, yeah. um, will describe exactly what they're looking for. And then you have a little more serious, um, mandate, I guess, to follow. So the specific, uh, style and, um, that they're looking for and, um, you know, with Travel Alberta, they sort of just relaunched their brand uh, maybe in September with a little different. And then if you follow them closely, you'll see there's a little bit of a tweak to the images that they're sharing now versus a year ago. And, um, you know, when they did it, they took their, they invited a bunch of us in who were sort of their regular photographers or video mm-hmm. people and brought us in and had a meeting and kind of showed us the new style and just hoping that we can incorporate that into what we're shooting for them uh, as much as possible so um it's super small so it's funny if you if yeah if you follow travel alberta i mean they sort of took the uh, big landscape little person uh thing and saturated it for a few years yeah Uh, and it was all you know huge and huge mountain landscapes with a little person in there yeah and now in the last six months they're just stepping closer i guess um and like people play a more prominent role, so it's people doing things. Yeah. Um, and you're closer to the person, and maybe you can see more features now, so you can actually identify the people. Uh, and they're trying to start the idea of you know sharing stories of uh, Albertan people, and uh, you know the different stories of the people that end up here, living here, and they kind of create the experience that you'll have if you come and visit. Um, so it's just like, yeah, basically it's like an old photo saying is if you want to take better photos, take three steps closer. Yeah. And that's essentially what they're doing is taking three steps closer to all their photos. Um, but it's kind of a, it's definitely a different um, feel to it. You can definitely see it if you, I guess, if, as a photographer, if you're paying attention to it, you see it. And as a viewer, I think you just naturally see it maybe without recognizing it. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned a large social media following. I don't think you and I had chatted about this before, but um, I think I'd been on your Instagram once, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> Not that it's a surprise how many you know people might follow you, and for what you know for the reason that they do. But you know, for your so, I'm assuming you have like Facebook, you have Twitter, you have Instagram. Is that kind of the focus, or do you? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I put more emphasis on Instagram just because. I've had better luck on it, so I have more followers. Yeah. And then also, um, yeah, I guess it's the only one until recently. It wasn't sort of a pay-to-play thing because Facebook pages, um, there's a bit of a, well, it's, uh, anyone who uses it will know it's sort of like you have to pay to reach more viewers and things. So yeah. it's just a little more difficult to do on a personal scale. Yeah. But. So when you when you were starting out, where did you see the big, so I guess focusing on Instagram, where did you see the big jumps as far as number? It, it feels kind of like vain to talk about this, but it, you know, it is a business and you know, these things matter, but like, you know, when did you say jump from 
50 people, the 500. Right. Like, were there like specific reasons that, you know, yeah. Well, I think that? I was just incredibly fortunate because I, um, uh, basically I had 300 followers and, you know, I personally had conversations with all 300 of them probably in my life. They were just friends and family and yeah. people I'd met. And then, uh, um, travel Alberta did their first Instagram tourism marketing campaign and hired sort of six, I think there were six or eight people that came in, um, to Alberta that all had huge followings and they hired me to guide them around and show them the photo locations. Um, and just that week, I think I went from 300 to like 8,000 followers or something. Wow. And that's just from having, you know, eight big accounts that are, you know, mentioning you and um, pointing pointing people towards your feed. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, producing similar content or similar styles to it. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit. So that was a big growth. And then throughout that trip also, just seeing the, what they were doing on Instagram and how they were sort of marketing them themselves. I shouldn't say marketing, but how they were sharing their own photos and interacting with people that followed them. Yeah. I just learned a lot from it and uh, sort of spent, probably spent the next eight months after that really concentrating on growing it and got up um, pretty quickly to maybe 80,000 mm-hmm. uh, over that eight months. And then the growth slowed down, um, but just, yeah. Sorry, did you, you said 80,000? Yes. Wow. And then the growth like slowed down and probably in the next year went up to, I think I'm at 146 right now. Wow. Um, so it sort of, but it's much slower now than it was sort of when it was quickly growing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, focusing on the business side of it, you know, what are the, you know, other than kind of, it might feel cool to be the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the bell of the ball, but you, you know, what, what, as a, as a, you know, as an entrepreneur, how do you use those numbers to market yourself or is it something you use to market yourself? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, it, it's funny how it's sort of worked out. I think the, um, I mean, the biggest way I've, I've, we've been able to sell workshops that way. So, you know, I'm running travel photography workshops. We try to do two or three international locations every year. And pretty much our only advertising is on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, so we're pulling people that follow us um, in from that. And uh, so that works. And then also, I mean, the way it, I mean, I guess it kind of works in a few different ways. But if I was to pitch an idea um, to a company. So let's, you know, I guess since we're talking bikes, let's say I pitch a campaign to Specialize Canada and um, they have to choose between two photographers. They can pick a photographer that's great that has no following on online or they can pick a photographer that has, you know, similar standard of photography, similar levels, but they have 150,000 followers online. It's just kind of free marketing for them. Uh, so then they're more likely to pick that. Um, and then as your numbers get to a certain point, other brands, um, it's almost like you're now a publication in a way and they pay you yeah. for an ad placement on your social media feed the same way they might pay a Canadian cycling magazine for an ad in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea, and the, I think, I think it's a valid idea is that if people choose to follow you, they probably have a vested interest. Um, and as long as you're smart about the companies that you work with and do share that way it comes across a lot more authentically than um you know if i was just to randomly do some product it might not make sense but you know i work with eddie bauer regularly 
And, um, you know, they really just encouraged me to go out and do fun stuff in the mountains and use their username and hashtag. And it just makes sense because that's yeah. what I do on my days off. So no one, it's almost like they don't see it as an ad, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, well, that's how he does it. The rest of us, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll pay some uh, click farm over in China and uh, we'll get those legs going. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, you know, every year we have ambassadors apply for Hammer and, you know, I'm kind of the chief person that looks at all that. And every once in a while we get these athletes that apply. They, you know, are pretty clearly have not had any association with the brand before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, promote themselves as, you know, I have... 20,000 followers and things like that. I'm I'm curious, do you ever have, do any of these brands ever, uh, I don't even know if there's a way to do, well, there is kind of a way to do this, but do they they ever kind of do their due diligence to figure out like if this is like legitimate followers? Because I'll look at some of these accounts and I'm like, there's no way (laughs) 20,000 people follow you for these photos. Like I just can't believe it. Um, Yeah, definitely. I think there's, I mean, it's kind of a weird trend right now, or not, I shouldn't say weird. The new trend is, um, I think for the longest time, brands were only focused on the biggest numbers they could get. Um, yeah. and that's cause it was new and, and maybe the, it, they would, didn't have it figured out. So if you could report that you had 2 million likes on photos over a campaign, that was incredible. Yeah. And now the trend is using much more specific and oftentimes much smaller accounts, um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is bikepacking is pretty small. So a company that wanted to advertise to bike packers, you'd be better off finding someone who has 5,000 cyclists that follow them than to have 100,000 people that follow them. Um, and um, so there's definitely that is is new. Um, and then there are different softwares that are not software, websites and analytic tools that you can pretty much figure out if someone's cheating the system or if someone's legit. Um, that's definitely, uh, more and more and you see it all the time. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's, it's a weird, uh, weird world. Yeah, it is, but it, it is, it's not going away anytime soon. I think we can all agree. So it's better to learn how to do it authentically. And yeah, and it's funny too. I've seen it from both sides of the industry. Um, Corey Wallace, who yeah. we both know, yeah. um, he's asked me for some advice on how they grow his Instagram because it's something that Kona bikes is now asking, and they want to see from their racers because it is that social interaction and community growth that, mm. you know, ultimately will sell more bikes for a company and will, um, you know, just sort of grow their brand name. And uh, so, you know, that's him who's an established racer on their team. And then I've had companies approach me, not as a bike racer, but just as someone who, you know, they want to have associated with their brand maybe. So it's like they are starting to overlap the two uh the two places and i mean you see it with the super athletes all have huge um followings and i mean some of that's due to celebrity some of that's due to the quality of the con the, of what they're sharing and sort of you yeah. know who they work with but hmm. so okay so we, we we i think we covered the photography end of things pretty well as far as kind of how you got into it the 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 writing side and i guess maybe specifically with canadian cycling Maybe fill people in a bit about, you know, how do how do you how do you write an article for you know that type of magazine? Like, how do you get into that that world? And I say this knowing because I've written articles for Canadian Cycling, and um, you know, I, I don't know if anyone really cares about my stuff, but they obviously <laughs> care about your stuff. So, so how do you how do you kind of break into that world? What's your experience? Yeah, I think the. Um 
I mean, I guess the, the very simple process is you have to, there's no sense doing the work ahead of time. Um, so it sort of starts with a query uh, letter, so an idea. Yeah. And the key to that is being as concise as possible in your idea. Um, so telling them exactly, telling when I say telling them, it's telling the magazine editor because uh, the idea should be specific to one magazine. Um, and you're telling them how long the article is going to be, what it's going to cover, what section of the magazine it fits in. Um, and then, you know, a really colorful intro maybe or introduction to what that article is going to be about. Yeah. And then also telling them why... If you're new to the magazine, it's telling them who you are and why you're reliable enough to fix it or to, to uh, complete the article. Yeah. Uh, and I think, so if you just think the story idea, where it fits in the magazine and why you or why, you know, why you can do it. And you can do that in, I mean, I would never write a query letter that's longer than one page. Um, and it just looks like a typical business letter. Um, if you're sending it as an attachment or more often it's just copy and pasted right into a email now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so you do that and then if they like the idea, um, then that should, uh, you know, if you get the assignment, then I guess just completing it. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, uh, and I did this when I was starting out, I kept pitching feature magazines and kept getting rejected or sorry, feature stories and kept getting rejected. And the, the truth of the matter is when you're a new writer, you kind of have to figure out what those front of book pieces are in magazines and the 300 word articles that, mm. um, you know, it's not what you dream about writing, but it's a way into the magazine because the chance of them trusting the new guy on a 3000 word feature. I mean, if you don't deliver that on time, they're kind of in a hard spot. If you don't deliver 300 words, they can, you know, a, the editor can write something up uh, and never work with you again, but yeah. can write it up and not have a hole in the magazine. And my my experience, um, not not that I have a ton, but once you get to know the editors and you know you you've you know written an article or two for them and they understand your style and you kind of understand each other, I find the the process sometimes becomes a bit more informal where you can just Ugh. shoot an email like, hey, you know, I'm doing this cool thing and, you know, yeah. you're not writing page uh, proposals sort of thing. No, definitely. That's very new new situations because definitely with Canadian cycling now, um, I do quite a few of their 48-hour travel stories for Canada. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes I'm just being told what holes they have in like which deadline sort of thing. And I just sort of okay. pick a West Coast and an East Coast one and um, they never, you know, you're literally just naming a town and, uh, yeah. that's enough to get it through, but that's based on having written 10 or 15 of them now for them. So there's a level of trust. Yeah. Um, so when, when you're, um, the, the articles that I've done, I, I all, I did them all from, you know, my home. I didn't have to travel, but are, are these companies paying for your expenses when you pitch these things or? Is it presumed that you were going there anyways? Yeah, and you're on your own dime. Definitely, the uh, golden age of magazines, I think, is long behind us. Uh, yeah. That used to be the case, but I think now I've never had an assignment where they cover travel expenses. Um, typically, it's mm-hmm. assumed that you've been there for some other reason, yeah. um, or uh, you know, having awareness of the trails. For some of the stories as well, it's not always necessary to go. You can do a lot through research and. You know, I, I really liked the story I did about Winnipeg, and I literally just called bike shops and 
um, you know, talk to the people that work at the bike shops about where they bike and what kind of bikes are suitable there. And then I found a girl on Twitter and gave her a call and interviewed her. And, you know, you don't need to always go there. You can do a lot of riding from your, from your office. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, writing and, and the photography, is it safe to say that photography is probably more your focus of the two? Yeah, definitely. In the last four or five years, photography's become, it used to be the opposite now. It's sort of 70-30 photography yeah. to writing, and it used to be the exact opposite. So, it's been a transition uh, towards a very heavy photo thing, and now, hopefully in the next sort of three or four years, it'll go heavily in the video as well. Um, so. Is is that just because you you need that tool in your belt because that's what you know people in the industry are kind of multi talented or is it because that's where your passion is like what's the motivation behind filmmaking? Um, I think I mean there is a bit of a logical step to it from more and more they are looking for photos and video from the same people um so there's that but i think personally i just like the idea of video because you get to go back to telling stories which is maybe what i'm missing from the writing uh, aspect of things um and i I, when i you know i go on these travel marketing campaigns for a destination um and and, you know maybe i go to another country and i experience the country capture lots of great images that i love um but i don't necessarily get to tell the story of the guide that took us on a seven day hike in Kyrgyzstan. And that's what I think, um, you know, if you were to do a video, you could tell that story and kind of bring it out. And I think it's more, um, yeah, just, I guess from a creative point of view, it puts you back in more control. Um, and, and, um, maybe just like, yeah, a greater sense of purpose to it. Yeah. I, I think that's maybe why I stepped away from, pursuing the, the magazine um jobs just because i was sensing this trend where they were looking for you know their their ideal article was you know 10 tips for this five tips for this like very right. easily digested mm-hmm. um pieces they weren't necessarily looking like you like you said for stories and i think you know one of my one of my favorite comments i got back on a on a piece well, well from Matthew Canadian Cycling he's like uh, I think it was one of the first articles I wrote for him he said something like too much too much Lord of the Rings like we, we're not looking for some epic <laughs> uh, which is what I was used to I had just written a book and like that's the how I'm used to telling stories and um, you know I, I get it because people don't really digest long form stories very like even when i open an outside magazine and they have an article that spans 10 pages like i'm like i take a deep breath like i'm like this is gonna be work right well an outside is one of those magazines that is so well known for their long form stuff yeah um so you're you're expecting it there but it is true long form i mean i shouldn't say it's dying because i think maybe it's coming back a little bit right now but the yeah we don't have the attention span for it and mm-hmm. maybe that's part of the motivation to video as well because you can probably tell that 10 or 15 page story in a video that people will sit through for five to eight minutes um that's ultimately how much time maybe you have from someone so yeah so um when you when you mentioned video as, as being kind of the next wave or you know next pursuit for you is 
are you know groups like Travel Alberta and that are are they sort of putting that out there that that's where they want to focus more too or is that more from your end? Uh, it's more from my end, and I think it's more from the work I've been doing with brands lately. They, um, I think the work uh, I've done with travel um, marketing stuff is very photo based, yeah. uh, and they'll have a, almost a different team that's doing their video work. Um, and I think the yeah on the other side doing the work with brands where there's I guess there's more of a chance for overlap and just more um, you know they could make use of both um, products or maybe they have a different just a different way of putting it online and sharing it so yeah that's interesting when you when you spend the time to really analyze it and you you know, go to like the Banff Film Fest and you realize yeah like just how many brands are starting to get into like those five ten minute videos that are just like the new wave of um advertising like a really slick video that you don't even really realize you're being promoted to i think probably started with like you know the red bulls of the world but uh yeah if you think of red bull or i mean every mountain bike video that you've ever watched (laughs) always had you know 10 sponsors flashed up in the intros and then it went through this you know hour-long bike video yeah uh, and now more instead of doing those long edits companies instead of being part of a bigger production they're doing their own you know five ten minute edit and making something really nice that i guess it's you know they have control it's all the bikers are on their bikes in the video all the so it's the brand placement but it's always or at least the companies that are doing it well it's always sort of subliminal i guess you're just yeah. seeing like great content that you're stoked on yeah um and danny mackerskills the he's the guy to think about i mean we've all seen those videos and we all know them none of us are trial riders yeah um but you know they're just that just works online i mean it's yeah. super quick and makes you super amped to go get on your bike so yeah yeah uh, cool. Well, I'm going to switch gears for a sec. Let, let's go through some of the questions we got from uh, folks on our forum. And we did get um, a bunch this time, which is great to see. It's nice not to always operate in a bubble <laughs> when I do these things. Uh, okay, so in no particular order, I think the most recent one we got was from... Uh, Philippe Gomez, and if I'm thinking of the right guy, he's a, a cyclist that's been touring for quite a while with a guitar. Have you heard of this guy? No. <laughs> yeah, he's come up as a suggestion for the podcast, actually, um, through Saskatchewan, all, all around Canada, um, kind of more northern locations. Um, I think going around playing gigs, and I, I don't know a ton about his story, but maybe that's a good reason to have him on. But anyways, uh, Philippe was asking, um, I, I guess more in regards to writing, if, if you've done stories on some of the tours you've done, um, how are you taking notes while you're touring? Um, <laughs> terribly. <laughs> um, I think the, I used to try to take notes um, and think of more things. Now, late, I guess in the last little while, um, with my phone, I take a bunch of photographs that aren't nice photographs, but they're just more things. You know, I'm photographing signs that have distances on them. Yeah. Um, photographing even a menu at lunch, if I think I'm going to have to write about, you know, the price of food and the destination in, in an article. And uh, just documenting what things look like that way. So not necessarily thinking yeah. of what it looks like, but just doing that. Um, 
And then suddenly a friend of mine, uh, Matt Gibson, uh, we were in Kyrgyzstan together working for the tourism board, and he got me onto using the voice dictation on my phone. Uh, so then instead of having to write down notes, I just hit record and describe what I'm looking at or describe how my day went, uh, you know, when I'm in my tent at night, and that I can replay it later. Yeah. Um, and I'm doing it so it types it out. Not I don't have to listen to a recording, I guess. I can... Uh, I'd like I'm transcribing it onto my phone, and then I can just copy and paste it and have it to you know edit or reword. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think the only time I've taken a notebook was probably when I yeah my last go for the guidebook. Um, each night back in my tent, I would write down all the notes that were kind of fresh in my head. I think pictures work great uh, too, but um, you know. <laughs> Especially on a long tour, it's easy to forget. Like, yeah, why did I even take that picture? Like, and get confused about the yeah. order of things in your mind. If you're, I mean, I rely a lot on my memory for some shorter articles. But you, you know, if you did something over, you've done tour divide a couple times. If you were to do that, you'd start to almost confuse what state. You know, the order of towns and stuff would just go out the window. Um, but yeah, getting it on, I just use my phone because I always have it, and yeah. I don't want to carry a notebook and a pen. Um, yeah. Uh, cool. Next question from uh, Jonathan Hayward. Uh, he was asking, or he is asking, uh, what type of equipment does uh, Jeff recommend for the non-professional photographer to bring on minimalist adventures like bi- bike packing or backpacking? So yeah. we're, I guess we're, we're talking specifically about like camera gear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I just did the... Um, uh, New Mexico off-road runner and I just took um, a Sony a6500 uh, which is a crop sensor mirrorless camera yeah uh, but I only took a 1655 lens so it's like the kit lens that comes with the camera okay um, and uh, from a you know super basic one camera setup that's uh, that was pretty good it worked great yeah. um, that the lens that comes with it isn't the sharpest lens for photos but it's awesome for video because uh, it has a zoom feature that um, locks focus while you zoom it so you can actually do a little bit of variation um, but I think um, any digital camera <laughs> made in the last few years is pretty good yeah. um, the photos I had published in Canadian Cycling from our, my Tour Divide trip was like a Sony NX3 um, uh, and that's like a $300 camera uh, so it's definitely I mean all cameras are pretty good I think my personal favorite um camera that is right now would be the sony rx100 uh, and then maybe the fuji x10 or whatever the latest version of the x10 is and those are fixed focal length um so you know it's sort of like an 18 millimeter lens but super useful super good video and photo quality um and with a fixed lens you just have to move around to get your photos and you know move closer move farther away and zoom with your feet yeah and so you you defaulted to to more of a um you know a, what's 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 my what's the word i'm looking for like a, you defaulted to a camera not a, not a phone so why, uh, why why not a smartphone um i think the i mean i guess it ultimately depends what you plan to do with the photos um phones are getting way better but it's still a super small sensor which means um, I mean, your iPhone photos um, look great during the day, and they're not great at the sort of edges of the day when the light's better. They're not good at sunrise and sunset. 
they don't have quite the dynamic range. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think it's better to use a camera. Um, not to mention if it's a long trip or something, just having memory cards, it's a lot easier than maybe managing, you know, space on your phone. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just my personal go-to. I'll make my own suggestion for what it's worth, but, um, maybe bring the camera you're going to use. That's yeah, that's the, uh, cause, uh, you know, the lesson, the lesson I learned of when I did the Arizona trail and even, even at, at a touring pace, um, you know, I had a camera backpack. That's how I was carrying it. And I had a, like a big, uh, Canon, what was it? 60 D you know, big lens on it and, you know, mm-hmm. a tripod and everything. Like it was kind of ridiculous, but the fact that it was, it had so much required just to set it up. Right. And it wasn't like the, the, the iPhone in my back pocket. I, I think I must, I think I only took like three or five shots, like the whole, whole trip. Arizona trail, <laughs> just because I would always default to my phone. Cause it was easy in the, in the moment. Yeah, it's funny too because just on my most recent trip in New Mexico by myself, I took the A6500 and I took a small tripod with me as well. Yeah. Um, and then I found I shot a lot with my phone because of that I didn't have anyone to photograph, yeah. so I'd either set up a shot and then like go ride through it myself, or I would I was you know I'm just started doing stuff to remember the trip or document it, and then I'm not worried about the quality. Um, but if I'm thinking from, a, you know, if I'm thinking the images I want for a specific reason, then, uh, I just want a little better camera, I guess. Yeah. But. Selfie sticks. What's your take? <laughs> this is my question. <laughs> seem really good for uh, hitting people with. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, not, I, I feel like nothing ruins a photo more than when you see like two people take a bad picture of themselves and you barely see... You know, they you know they're at some like iconic destination, and you yeah. can barely see it because they're so consumed yeah. with like making sure they're in the photo. I think if you're gonna use one, I think a GoPro instead of a phone because it's much wider. Oh, okay. um, yeah. From like you know, I, I don't personally do it that often, but there are some people that have done a great job of using a GoPro, big landscape behind them. Um, and the cool thing with the GoPro, uh, as well as you could do it moving, and I think that's when the selfie works the best. Is you know, you see someone you know you see them biking away and then maybe the shot goes into a into what they're biking towards if it's video and that's where it works a lot better um but just straight up selfies are maybe great for yourself well even well best of both worlds i guess would be like those new 360 cameras that are coming out because you get both you and the landscape and i I guess you can figure out which one you want to focus on it doesn't necessarily have to be a 360 yeah i haven't used one yet so it'll be interesting once they're uh, i know gopro is coming out with theirs pretty quick it looks pretty slick, uh, and um, but I think the um, yeah, and I mean, if you're really getting into video or photos, well, no more video. I mean, gimbals are getting smaller and lighter, yeah. um, and you can definitely, I mean, stable cameras make all the difference in video. What's a gimbal, um, Jeff? Uh, it's a magic device. <laughs> no, uh, it's like a um, yeah, it's just an electronic device that Stabilizer. stabilizes yeah. the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they work on two or three axes, so you can have panning motions or, yeah. you know, just to keep them super smooth and make movements uh, that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. One of the biggest improvements that I, I find, you know, like the average user can make to their photography or video, and not to say that I'm an expert at it, but 
um, you know, carrying around a small little tripod like the one we used to film the live video here, and mm-hmm. um, or like a gimbal, like you said, like something that could easily fit in your back pocket. Right. Yeah. Just um, anything to stabilize footage in a tripod. Yeah. If nothing else is definitely a, a big improvement. Yeah. And that's sort of, I mean, to go back to your selfie idea, um, and what's what I did in New Mexico the whole time was, you know, I didn't have someone to photograph, but I wanted photographs with people in them. So I'd set up my camera, focus far in the distance and like bike into the frame. And that's a lot better than a selfie of me standing there showing less of the landscape behind me. Yeah. Um, Cause you can actually compose a photograph that way. Yeah. That was, that was the one tough thing about the, getting photos for the guidebook is you know quite often i'm the only one out there and you know i didn't want to just have photos of me all the time but you had to kind of provide context like here's a bike in the environment and yeah i had to get pretty creative to get some of the photos but thankfully we got a lot of user submissions too from people that had seen parts of the routes that i was doing and i figured i could work that in Um, cool. Uh, Kristen Anderson is asking, does Jeff have any tips about uh, optimizing phone photography uh, for those of us going ultra light? So, you know, we, okay, so yeah, we, we already said, you know, your choice would be more of a dedicated camera, but so, okay, you're using a phone. Um, we talked about a little bit of uh, like using a tripod, but maybe are there any apps in particular you like to to use um, that can really you know uh, take things to the next level yeah no I think I mean I usually just use the native camera app in whatever phone I have um, I think the biggest thing is any photo sort of the easiest tips to use phones struggle with light um, so backlighting super tough with the phone the sensors just can't handle it so um, getting light, you know, postcard light so it's behind you illuminating the scene or cross light where it's coming across the scene will create a lot of texture. Um, And both those things require, you know, early mornings or late afternoons when the sun's a little lower uh, and avoiding the midday sun when it's quite low and or quite high and very flat. Um, And then, I mean, two other tips that I always tell people is to find a foreground anchor. So to put something in the immediate foreground of your image um it will always help anchor uh especially with landscapes um quite often if you're standing up at shoulder level you know holding your phone in front of you it's a pretty boring photo get down close to the road and get the cactus on or something in focus that'll look great um and then really paying attention to all four corners of the photo um and looking around don't just look at what you're photographing but make sure there's no junk in there Mm. um and, you know, sometimes you're moving closer to something uh, and sometimes you're taking a step back and maybe the trees frame something instead of, uh, yeah. you know, you don't want anything halfway, I guess. Um, but those would be sort of the three tips. Um, Make sure to clean your lens, too, especially <laughs> if you're carrying the phone in your back pocket. It's sweaty. <laughs> yeah. One big thing, too, with um, phones and everyone, if you go out at sunset, you always see this. It's like you tap the screen and you highlight the you like tap on the sky and the sky looks phenomenal and the foreground's black and you tap on the foreground and then the sky goes white and just learning to focus on your subject and then using the um on an iphone it's a sunshine that you can drag up or down and then on an android phone it's just a plus minus and like focus on what you want to focus on and then set the exposure yeah it'll it improves things dramatically something you didn't touch on but um, when you're using a dedicated camera, I'm assuming you're shooting in RAW? 
Uh, yeah, anytime I'm on camera, I shoot in RAW, and that's only um, because I will take the time to edit in Lightroom and yeah. Photoshop later. Um, the a JPEG is basically just an edited RAW image that you're you're allowing the camera to optimize instead of you optimizing it. Yeah, um, it's great for online use. It's great for um, you know, being able to send it out tonight or, yeah. you know, if you're uploading from the road or something, they look great. But raw images just give you more um, creative control later. Yeah. And I never even thought to ask this, but do any cameras that you're aware of shooting like, have the ability to shoot in raw? I don't think they do, but... Any phones? Yeah, sorry. Um, yes. Uh, I think all Android and iPhones will shoot in RAW now using, if you download Adobe's Lightroom app for phones, it's a free app, uh, uh, and it uh, lets you capture RAW. And it even lets you do um, multiple, multiple exposure HDR RAWs, um, which, uh, you know, if you're shooting with bright and, like, with big highlights and shadows in it, it actually helps you create a really nice image. Uh, I haven't used it too much, but it's... Um, the app's getting rave reviews from photographers um, as a, you know, kind of a tool that you can use on the phone that's pretty good. Yeah. Adobe's gotten a little sneaky lately. <laughs> they, uh, I don't know if you use many of their, their well, software, but now it's all uh, mon- monthly subscriptions. Yeah, monthly subscriptions. And they've also taken out all of their competition, so it's uh, updates are much less frequent. <laughs> uh, okay. I didn't know that piece. Yeah, like I think uh, I've got... Um, well, Photoshop I've had for a while, so thankfully I don't have to pay for that. But uh, what do I use? Adobe Illustrator? And I think mm-hmm. it cost me like, I want to say like 20, 30 bucks a month. Yeah, I think like the Photoshop Lightroom packs, 10 bucks. Um, and then, yeah, I think all the other apps are $19 separately or like 54 for everything. Yeah. Yeah, so it does that up for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never used Lightroom, but I, I've heard like that's the kind of the, the one you want to use if you're working with raw photos. Yeah, it's the it's the easiest just because it helps you manage your. Um, it's like the um, it's a library as well as an editor, so it's helping you store the images and keep track of everything. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, I mean, light. It's essentially the same uh, with raw images. It's the same workflow as Adobe Camera Raw, which would open in Photoshop if you open the raw image. Yeah. Um, but you just would have to sort your own folders out uh, to use Photoshop, where Lightroom sort of imports them and puts them all in one place. Yeah. Is it cloud based then? No, it's still on your hard drive. Um, okay. It's just like an organization filing system. Sort of, like, It's very similar to what um, iPhoto would be on a MacBook. Mm, okay. Uh, moving on to Megan Dunn, uh, who is a great photographer, uh, local photographer. Uh, she wants to know, does uh, Jeff edit on the road? Um, if so, what setup does he use? And uh, I guess going back to our cloud discussion, how does how does he back things up uh, when on the road? <laughs> um, I don't back things up on the road if I'm on a bike trip. I guess um, yeah. just stick to a bike theme. I just I think that SD cards are the safest place to store things. Um, so as long as you don't lose the SD cards, <laughs> um, I think it's pretty safe to have a single copy. Um, and then as far as editing on bike trips. Um, I yeah I, I definitely do it I um, all my cameras have Wi-Fi so I'm able to send photos to my phone um, and then I'll just use a combination of 
Snapseed is sort of my go-to, uh, and there's a new app called Darkroom that's really good as well. Mm-hmm. And I can do sort of an edit on my phone, uh, and that's to me that's the quality is good enough to use in, for social media. Um, and then those images I'd always edit edit later um, for use if it was going to get printed or yeah. be seen a little bigger, I guess. Yeah, the the veil is starting to lift. For those of you that don't know, a lot of the nice photos that you see on Instagram were not taken by a phone. They were taken <laughs> by someone who went through the process of uh, you know taking it with a nice camera, um, uploading it to well their computer, editing it, and then sending it back to their phone. I'm assuming is the yeah. way to do it. Instagram is is pretty tricky though. Yeah, exactly, and it's definitely. Um yeah, instant isn't a good word for it anymore. Because uh, I mean, sometimes it'll be the same day, but it's never in the or it's rarely in the moment. Um, I think, and that's where I mean, even when I was on a bike trip, I was editing photos um, in small video clips on my phone. But quite often, I was just putting those on Instagram stories, yeah. uh, and that's where I feel comfortable putting up sort of B-roll stuff. People will see it, um, and then uh, sort of like keep the account active, but it's not. Uh, it's like not something I want permanently on there, maybe. Uh, okay, so going to current winter conditions from Miles Arbor, he's asking for uh, cold weather photography and uh, lenses fogging up. Any tips, um, I guess, for, for alleviating the, the problems <laughs> that you would have uh, in cold weather conditions? Yeah, it's so funny. Fog, yeah, uh, just having this conversation. I've actually never had a problem in the cold with it. I think Alberta's too dry to create condensation on a lens. Yeah. Um, but I know that, I mean, the biggest thing is letting the camera gear, um, is how it works in the summer and the winter. It's just letting the camera gear, uh, like, adapt to the temperature. So you don't want to take it off the dashboard of your truck where it's, you know, sitting on a heater and go outside. So you want to kind of slowly introduce it to a new temperature. Um, and if I'm shooting skiing in the wintertime, I quite often just uh, keep the batteries on me. Uh, and I'll just like set the camera bag outside um, for you know an hour or two before I go. And if I think it's been inside all night, and then I zip it shut, it doesn't instantly freeze. It sort of is a slow transition. That seems to work great. Um, and uh, I mean, the biggest thing with winter, and I've experienced it very little, but batteries do tend to die a little quicker. So just keeping them on your body instead of in your bag. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you might shoot a battery for a half an hour and switch it out if you're shooting a lot at the same time just like switch it put it in your pocket until it's warm again and put it back in Mm. um but uh yeah i just haven't experienced it too much um so yeah couldn't say more than that okay cool um all right coming up on an hour what why don't we uh you know what looking ahead to 2018 i know that you're not necessarily slowing down you're still got a lot on the go right now but are there any uh, uh big trips tours projects you're looking forward to uh in the new year yeah i've got um it's funny it's the first year where i'm pretty i've been able to plan well ahead so i think my work is uh sort of figured out until uh mid-summer at least um and i've kind of so yeah i just have a bunch of time off in uh march because that's ski season and i'm a skier uh, and then i've got may off as well so i'll be looking for sort of an early season bike trip then and uh but i haven't decided on any of those yet so looking for ideas um and a lot will depend on this winter's snow and uh for there was for the bike trip in may it just depends what's melted out by then uh where i have to go cool 
Any uh, any final tips, uh, recommendations for those listening when it comes to uh, photography, writing, or filmmaking? Yeah, well, I guess the one thing I, I, I tell a lot of people that ask, because um, I think that there's this misconception that it's really hard to be a photographer uh, or writer. Um, and uh, I think there's more money in the industry right now than there's ever been. Um, and if you think about especially photos and video, I guess. I mean, we just live off that stuff on our phones. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's more money than ever, but the hardest thing is figuring out how to get, um, how to get access to it, I guess. So, you know, rather than, uh, maybe yes, spend time learning to master how to take photos or create videos and like get really good at your craft, but it's, it's really spending the time to figure out how the industry works and where the money is and creating something that has a value to someone else and if you can do that there's uh it's not a it's no harder than any other profession you still have to get people to trust you to hire you basically yeah um, well uh this has been a great interview jeff and uh <laughs> i appreciate you you got a lot of wealth of knowledge and uh it doesn't look like i have to edit anything out it's uh, it was pretty seamless so thank you very much for uh, your time today and uh you know i look forward to hopefully collaborating uh, in 2018, you know, whether it's film or video or uh, pictures and, you know, help grow the, the local scene. And Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing a lot more here locally, that's for sure, and getting out on more uh, sort of shorter bike pack trips, I think, is the yeah. the reality of my situation, maybe, so I have to take advantage of it. And that's perfectly okay. <laughs> All right, well, this has been uh, episode 41. Thanks for uh, being on today, Jeff. No problem. Cool.